Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. I love that song that we just heard. It is so clever and captures an experience I think all of us have had. That, that experience of not being completely honest with yourself or with other people. The, the experience of hiding. The experience of being alone and isolated with your own sin and failure and shame. You ever been there? I heard someone recently say that when you come to faith in Jesus, you do it because you realize you're a sinner and then you spend the next 40 years trying to convince everybody that's not true. What if I told you there was a better way? What if I told you that you didn't have to be alone with your sin, that you didn't have to be stuck with guilt and shame, that you didn't have to be isolated, that there was actually freedom that was possible. There is a better way. Today we're gonna be looking at the New Testament book of 1 John, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 John chapter one. All summer long we've been talking about spiritual rhythms, the things that we do over and over that shape who we become, and we've been searching for habits that are gonna help us be shaped by God's grace rather than by all the pressures of the world. And so the rhythm we're talking about today is one that specifically helps us experience God's grace in our areas of guilt and shame and regret. It's the rhythm of confession. That's what this passage talks about. So let's start reading in verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how do we deal with our guilt and shame? Let's start by talking about what we're not supposed to do. Let's start by talking about how to hide your guilt and shame. This passage starts by posing a problem. Might not have sounded like a problem at first, but it's a huge problem. And that problem is God. Look at what it says in verse five. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. It might not sound like a problem at first. It might actually sound kind of inspiring, you know, because it is. I mean, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. That this is so different from the gods in the ancient world around John's time, the people that, uh, that worshiped other gods. They were worshiping gods uh, that were not like that. I just recently read a collection of Greek myths and the stories of all these different gods. I'll just tell you this. These are cosmic level jerks, just petty violent, self-seeking, they're awful. It's as if every high school bully was giving superpowers. It was like, oh gosh, this is awful. If, if you are thankful that there is a God of moral purity, moral excellence and perfection, you should thank the Bible for that because that's where the idea came from. That this is good news. God is a God that you can respect, not just because he's powerful, but because he's good. God is light. We like that until we have to come into the light. 
You, you ever been in a dark room, kind of fumbling around, you know, bumping into things, stepping on Legos, hypothetically speaking? You're just like, oh, I just wish I, wish I had a little bit more light. I could see better. And then someone actually turns on all the lights, and you're like, ah, whoa, why'd you do that? It's so bright. This is what it's like when we encounter God. We want the lights to go on. We say we want to walk in the light, but when we experience it, we realize we're more used to the dark than we realize. It's not just the intensity that's the problem. It's actually what the light shows. Because in the light of God's goodness, our sin is impossible to hide. The, the counters of our kitchen and in my home are kind of speckled. They're, they're mostly blue. They got some white and brown in them, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because they kind of hide messes. They're hard to see. There's a part of the counter that I usually go to when I make my breakfast. I pour myself a bowl of cereal and I make a cup of tea every morning. And a while back, Michelle said, hey, when you make your breakfast, could you just afterwards kind of just wipe that part of the counter down because you usually make a mess. I'm like, I don't make a mess. I'm not a toddler. I can pour some milk. I can put some sugar in my tea. I'm, I'm not making a mess. Look, there's, there's nothing here. I'll show you. And so I take a towel and I wipe the counter and I go, look, filthy, just disgusting. Like, it's like animal from the Muppets made my breakfast. Like, Aah! you know, it's just everywhere. It's like a cup of sugar and there's tea leaves and there's just, it's gross. I'm like, well, it must have been on the towel before I wiped it, right? Like, I didn't do that. See, the mess was always there. I just couldn't see it. And this is what our sin is like. We're used to comparing ourselves, looking at ourselves on the backdrop of everybody else's behavior. Because compared to everybody else, we might not look so bad. But when you look at God, you can't hide it anymore. It's bad. And our natural instinct when this happens is to hide. There's an interesting detail. If you've ever read the story of the Garden of Eden, very first story in the Bible, Adam and Eve, when they sin, in our imagination, we think, okay, they sin, and God comes rushing in and says, get out of here. That's not what happens. God comes in. You know the very first thing he does? He calls out to them. He says, Adam, where are you? He's saying, I want to be near you. I want to see you. I want to talk to you. Well, where are Adam and Eve? They're hiding, you know? They're just, they're, they're, they're out, out there in the bushes. They're, they don't want to be seen. Their, their instinct is to withdraw. God says, I want to talk with you. And they say, we don't want to be anywhere near you. The first thing is not God sending us out of his presence. The first thing is us hiding ourselves from his presence. This is what we do. We pull back into the shadows so we can't be seen. We cover up, withdraw. We hide the truth about ourselves from God, from others, even from ourselves. In our society, I see two major ways that people try to cope with guilt and shame. The first strategy is self-improvement, self-improvement. A variety of ways this takes place. It basically means when you use your own effort to make up for the things that are wrong, you know, the things that, that, that your, your failings, you try to say, I've got the strength and power to change myself. And so you go to therapy and you read self-help books. You put in an effort to address those character flaws that you see and you, you, you make amends with people that you've hurt. You do all of these things. And if you're religious, you do all the stuff. You go to church and you join the groups and you do all the spiritual disciplines because your pastor gave you 10 more this summer. You're like, I'm putting them all on the list. And all of these things are good things, right? You, you've heard us talk about these things over and over again from this stage. But here's the problem. It's when you use those things to try to solve the problem of guilt and shame. But that's not what they're for. None of those things can take back your past failures. 
None of those things can make you so good that you'll never mess up again in the future. None of those things earn you points with God to sort of offset the bad things that you've done. It doesn't work that way. You know what happens when you try to use those things to take care of your guilt and shame? You become judgmental and hypocritical. You become judgmental because you start to do these things and you think, huh, I'm doing pretty good. What's wrong with them? You become hypocritical because as you start to look a little better in some places, you decide, well, I'm just gonna hide the things that aren't keeping up. They stay in the shadows. You don't let people see them. You pretend like you're okay. But 1 John 1.6 says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. We don't live out the truth. So sometimes we hide our sin by seeking self-improvement. But the other way we try to hide our sin is through self-affirmation, self-affirmation. So we see things that we don't like in our life, we feel guilty and ashamed of that, and we say, you know what? What if they're not really that bad? Maybe these aren't something to be ashamed of, maybe there's something to affirm, something to celebrate. It's our Elsa moment, you know, we're sick and tired of hiding it all in, so we just let it go. Tired of changing, I'm just gonna be who I am. Now there are some times when that is exactly what you need to do. There are certain things that are not sinful, that people feel ashamed of, and they don't need to. You know, they're ashamed of how they look, or they're ashamed of some aspect of their personality. They're an introvert, or their sense of humor is a little odd, or, you know, they're, they're ashamed of their cultural background, and they feel like, oh, man, I, I, I want to hide that. We say, no, 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 those are things to affirm and celebrate and embrace. Those are good things. There's a lot of false shame out there. The, the problem is when we end up using self-affirmation to affirm things that are actually wrong. They become, it becomes an excuse for sin, a way to hide. So you ever heard someone use the, the line, well, that's just the way I am. Well, I, I know I lost my temper, but I mean, that's just the way I am. Well, you're sure they were offended, but you know, I don't have much of a filter. That's just the way I am. Or they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, I'm just being honest, right? I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. No, you're just being a bully. You're just being a gossip. Or, or they appeal to the fact that they, they want to be happy. They say, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? God wants me to be fulfilled. This doesn't feel fulfilling. So they use it as an excuse to do things that the Bible clearly says you shouldn't do. They call evil good. And what ends up happening is we end up sort of being like Wreck-It Ralph. You ever see this movie? Wreck-It Ralph. So he is a villain in an arcade video game, but he doesn't like the fact that he's the bad guy and he wants to change. And so he's thinking, what else can I do? And as part of his processing, he goes to this support group for video game bad guys. And he's sitting there with Bowser from Mario and like a ghost from Pac-Man and a bunch of other guys. And they're, they're in this group and they're all trying to say, you should just embrace who you are, embrace the fact that you're a villain. And they all together say the group motto, I'm bad and that's good. I will never be good and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. It's like, be a villain, be a bad guy. This is what self-affirmation can become. It can become self-deception, calling what is evil good. Verse eight says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Both self-improvement and self-affirmation are ways to hide your guilt and shame. What we need to do instead is learn how to face our guilt and shame. The, the Bible often compares our sin to filthy rags, it's almost as if we've been invited to a feast with a king. And so we go home and we put on our very best clothes and we get ready for it and we look down and we realize, I'm in tatters. I smell, it's full of stains. 
if I walk in there, the bright lights of the banquet hall, they're gonna see what I'm really like. I can't go, I can't go. And so you read the Bible and you say, what, what, what does the Bible say I'm supposed to do about this? And our instinct says, well, it's gonna say do better, you know? Figure it out, like go home, wash those clothes, buy some new clothes, put, put on something, and then you can walk in and not feel ashamed. Self-improvement. Or, or we think, oh, you know what? It's gonna say no, wear the clothes you got. Walk in with your head held high, don't feel ashamed, no matter what anybody says or looks at you, you, you know, you feel good, you walk in, self-affirmation. But the Bible doesn't say either of those things. Instead it says, what if you let the king get you some new clothes? Now of course to do that, you gotta walk in and say, this is all I got, king, and show how you're really dressed. Verse nine says this, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you wanna deal with guilt and shame, it's not self-improvement or self-affirmation, it's self-honesty, self-honesty. It's admitting to yourself and to God and to other people, I'm not okay. This is who I really am, this is what I've really done, this is the state of my heart, and it's not okay. When a newspaper makes a mistake in a story, they will update the story online, but if it's a print, uh, version, they will actually the next day kind of print a, a correction for that story. And a while back, there was a, a newspaper in California that made this correction. It said, a headline on an item in the February 5th edition of the Inquirer Bulletin incorrectly stated, stolen groceries. It should have read, homicide. <laughs> this is what a lot of us do with our sin. We downplay it, we hide it, we refuse to acknowledge how serious it actually is. But here's what we need to learn to say. I am not just stressed out right now. I have an anger problem. I'm not just ambitious. I'm a workaholic. I'm not just someone who likes some wine to relax at night. I have a drinking problem. I'm not just comfortable voicing my opinions. I'm impatient and judgmental. I'm not just being frugal. I'm stingy. I don't just like nice things. I'm greedy and materialistic. I don't just slip up once in a while. I'm addicted to porn. I'm not just being a supportive colleague. I'm having an emotional affair. I'm not just processing my feelings. I'm bitter and unforgiving. We've got to be honest. Our sin is not stolen groceries. It's homicide. Okay, so what do you do? You, you get to that place and you look at yourself and you're honest and you don't like what you see. What do you do when you're in that place? This is where the Bible gives an answer that is completely unexpected and utterly revolutionary. It, it basically says, how do you deal with your guilt and shame? What do you do? In a sense, you don't do anything. You let someone else do something. You take it to Jesus and give it to him. Verse seven says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, the blood of Jesus, his son, not our works, not our effort, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. See, God doesn't just look at our sin and say, oh, it's no big deal. He says, actually, it is a really big deal. It is a big enough deal that I'm gonna have to deal with it. And then God does the opposite of what we do. You know what our instinct is? We see our guilt and our shame and we run away from God. But God sees it, and he runs towards us. That's what he does. God gets as close to us as he possibly can. He becomes one of us. 
He says, I'm going to make your problem my problem. It might have been your fault. You made the mess, but I'm going to clean it up. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's dying the death that we deserve for our sins. He's paying our price. He doesn't downplay our guilt and shame. He takes the full weight of our guilt and shame on himself so that he can take it off of our shoulders. But when we look at the things that we're ashamed of, we we assume, we we just know God is gonna reject us. I mean, anybody would, right? Like how could someone know what I'm really like, see what I've really done, know the real me and still love me? How can that be possible? And so our hiding is actually a form of survival. We, we think, look, the only way I'm gonna get the love that I need and crave is if people don't know all that much about me. That there's these things that they don't see so they can actually love the part that they do see. We, we can't be known as we are and still be loved. We just, we just know. But this is what the cross of Jesus Christ means. This is the good news. Because Jesus died for us, the truth is that we are fully known and fully loved fully known and fully loved. God knows everything about us, the the very worst, most hidden things about us, and he does not reject us. He actually pursues us. He chases after us. He doesn't just stand on the edge and say, hey, why don't you come out of that? Why don't you come out of your guilt and shame? Why don't you come out of your sin? He actually runs in to the guilt and shame with us. He, He takes it on himself. I will share in that. I will take the penalty, and I will take it away. He comes in to rescue us. And this is the only reason, the only reason we can have the courage to actually say, this is what I'm really like. It's knowing that when Jesus sees our sin, he runs towards us, not away from us. We are fully known and fully loved so we can be honest about who we are. That's good news. That's good news, friends. We need to take one more step. It's one thing to know about that, right? Like you can understand the information. You might've heard this before, right? Well, how do you experience it? Like, how do you get it worked down into your heart to the place where it becomes a, a part of you that you know and believe deep down at the core? I'm known and loved by God. So we gotta talk about how to drop your guilt and shame. How to drop your guilt and shame. This is where the practice of confession comes in. Because confession is the tangible way we experience being fully known and fully loved. It's how we actually get a taste of it. There are three major forms of confession. The first is, the the most basic one, it's probably the one, if you've done any, you've done this one. It's confession in prayer. Very simple. It's when you talk to God, and you're just honest. You say, God, this is what I've done. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And you don't sugarcoat, you don't make excuses, you just lay it out there and say, God, I'm throwing myself on your mercy. This is what I've done. And hopefully, if you're a Christ follower, this is something you do regularly, something you do every day. Because we sin every day, and so we always need to come and apologize again and again. I I just know, you know, kind of going through my day, a dozen times a day, the Holy Spirit's gonna ping me, and I'm gonna realize, oh, man, I was really rude in that situation. Ugh, I shouldn't have laughed at that joke. Ugh, man, like, I was was just looking out for myself. I was so selfish in that interaction. I gotta just say, God, I'm sorry. God, please forgive me. You just confess as you go. But it's not just in these ad hoc moments. We actually set aside time to do this. But when we spend time each day in prayer, uh, one of the patterns that we use around here, we talk about it a lot, is chat, C-H-A-T. Confess, honor, ask, and thanks. It's the things that we include regularly when we pray. We, We start off by confessing and saying, God, I'm sorry. We make it a regular habit in our life, confession in prayer. That's the first form. Second form of confession 
is confession in public. Confession in public. This is what we're talking about when we do that together as a group in a gathering like this in public worship. Now, around Christ Community Church, we do this probably at least once a month, usually more often. We've got a moment in our service where we prompt ourselves, this is the time to confess. So sometimes it's a moment of silence to do that. Sometimes it's a song that expresses that. Sometimes it's a written prayer that we pray together. And we do this regularly because we know that this is something that doesn't just need to be in private, but it needs to be in a group. Uh, and we know that when this happens, it helps us to be reminded to do this the rest of the time in our life. So we know we should be doing this all regularly. But when you come together in worship and we say, now take a moment and confess your sin, you're like, oh yeah, I should do that. And then you're more likely to do it as you go throughout the rest of your week. The, the other reason we do it is because confession in community gives us models. It gives us examples of how to confess our sin well. So when I was growing up, I had GI Joes. Okay, so I had a bunch of G.I. Joes, but for some reason that has never been explained to me, I was not allowed to have Cobra, like the bad guys. So I've got all the good guys, none of the bad guys. I don't know if they were supposed to be some sort of like UN peacekeeping force or something, I don't know. But if you don't have Cobra, who does G.I. Joe fight? Barbie. So regularly, I would invade my sister's room. We'd go into the Barbie dream house. And eventually, after the battle was done and fashion accessories and very unrealistic body parts are strewn across the room, my sister would come in and for some reason, she'd be upset. My mom would hear the noise and she'd come in, try to settle it down. And at some point, she would do something like this. She'd say, Clayton, I want you to say, Marta, I'm sorry for messing up your toys. And I'd go, Marta, I'm sorry for messing up your toys. She'd say, Marta, what do you have to say to your brother? I forgive you. Now, here's the question. Were those heartfelt apologies? <laughs> Not necessarily. But why did my mom think it was important to do that? Well, why do parents often teach their children how to apologize and offer forgiveness? How, how do you, why do we teach our kids these kind of lines to use, even though we know that a lot of times they don't mean it from the heart? We do it because otherwise they wouldn't know how to resolve a conflict. The kids don't have scripts for how to apologize, and on their own, they don't know what to say or how to say it. They need some examples of how to do it. And the truth is, this is true for most of us. Most of us don't know how to say sorry, even to God. And so we need examples. We need scripts that help us know the kinds of things we're supposed to say. Uh, so here at Christ Community, we regularly have written prayers of confession that we pray together. Now, often, uh, I hear from people, like, that was a really meaningful moment. Uh, regularly, I have people come and say, hey, can you send me a copy of that prayer? That was really powerful for me. But for other people, not so much. We, we pray those prayers, and you might be thinking, I don't always connect with that sort of thing. Well, why do we do it? Well, well, I would offer this. Even when that is not a powerful moment in the service, it can be a powerful model for how you approach your sin at other times in your life. It gives you examples of how to talk to God about those things. Uh, another reason we confess in public is because certain sins are group sins. That throughout the Bible, we see God's people confessing, not just the sin that they have committed individually, but the, confessing the sins of the entire community together. So Moses intercedes for the whole people for their sin. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they lead the community to confess the sins of the entire nation. Uh, Daniel confesses the sins of his ancestors that are uh, still affecting the people in that day. And so there are some times when we need to confess not just my sins, but our sins. And the appropriate place to do that is in public worship. 
as a way to help us with this act of public confession, we include songs about confession. It's so important to us that we've actually written some songs. Our, our worship team has gotten together to say, we want to write good songs of confession that help us do this. So uh, a few days ago, I sat down with one of our worship pastors to talk about a song of confession that we wrote together. I want you to hear the conversation here. ago, our worship pastors got together to write some songs, and one of those songs was called You Know Who I Am, and PD, you took the lead on writing that song, so why don't you tell us about how it came about? Yeah, so every year, our creative arts team gets together, and we want to write songs for our local church. So one of the songs that we came up with was the song You Know Who I Am, which is about confession. We wanted to be able to voice uh, and give, give the way for a church to confess in a worship service through song. Song starts in kind of a heavy place. It's pretty intense at the beginning. And so why did you take that approach of these opening verses being just so heavy? Yeah, so the chorus we came up with together and we were missing a lot of verses. So one day I sat down and I really wanted to be able to write something that was honest, raw, but true. and what I came up with with the verses are really just the feelings that I have when it comes to my sin, when it comes to confessing that, the weight of it, the heaviness of it, feelings of being alone, shame, uh, you're in a dark place. I wanted to be able to say that and, and give the permission for the people in our church to also say that. So the first couple of verses are pretty dark and it turns to the chorus, which is you see me, you know me, you know who I am. And when you sing that after those verses, you're singing that in light of the state of your sin. And it actually sounds like really bad news. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of startling in some ways. You expect the chorus to give you something and it's like, oh, that's heavy. But right after that first time you sing the chorus is this incredible moment where it talks about lifting up your eyes and seeing Jesus. And it's almost like the moment of truth. Like, how's he gonna react? What's the look on his face going to be? Tell me about that verse. Right, so you're, initially you're singing from this dark place. You're alone, you're afraid, you're ashamed. And your head is down and you look up and you see Jesus standing there. What is he gonna do? You might expect a punishment, judgment, but what Jesus actually does is he brings you close and he washes you clean. And you might not have expected that at all. And so there's this amazing feeling of love and redemption that you have because of what Jesus has done for you. So when you sing the chorus again after that, it says, you see me, you know who I am. You're singing from a place of victory. You're singing from a place of being clean instead of where your sin says you should be. And so there's almost this giant turn of joy where you're saying, now that I confess this, I've given this to you. God, you, you see me in a different way because of what Jesus has done. Yeah, that, that line about you, you draw me close and make me clean, the order of that is so important because he brings us close first and then he cleans us off. Sometimes we think it's the reverse. Like you've got to be clean and then you're allowed to become close. And, and Jesus is the one who does that for us. It's so cool. 
My favorite part, though, is the bridge. There's these big declarations about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, tell me why you put that in there. Yeah, so the bridge was something that was collaborative. A couple of worship pastors put that together, but we wanted to make a declarative statement of who we are because of what Christ has done for us. So the bridge says, I am known by the Father, I am loved through the Son, I'm washed in the Spirit, fully known and fully loved. So no matter what we've done, God knows everything, He loves us all the same. This declarative statement is almost like an anthem to say, this is who I am in Christ. And by the time you're singing that, you, you've almost forgotten about the things and the feelings that you, you felt in the first couple verses because there's, there's this triumphant joy that you have to say, this is who I am in Christ. That's what I love about confession is it brings us from a place where on our own, we're, we're stuck in this miserable state. And yet because of what God has done through, and then through this process of owning up, being honest about it, we come to a place where we can say, this is who I really am in Christ. It's incredible freedom, incredible gift to be able to do that. So we confess in prayer, we confess in public, but perhaps the most powerful form of confession is confession in partnership, in partnership. This is when you sit down with another person and you say out loud, this is what I have done. This is who I am. I want to show you the real me. Why on earth would anybody do that? Well, for one reason, it's commanded in Scripture. James 5 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So we do it out of obedience. That's not the only reason. We also do it because it forces us to be honest with ourselves. So when we are committing a sin, when you're in that moment, when you give in to sin, it's always because some part of you believes that this is a good idea. Like there's something in this that you want. And so you kind of you know, explain that this is a good decision. And even when we are confessing our sin to God in private, there are times when we can downplay it and bring in the excuses and rationalize it for ourselves. But there is something about saying out loud to another person, this is what I did, that brings it home. You feel the real weight of it. And I think this is a necessary part of the experience because it's part of the process of knowing that you are fully known, that is really seen out there by another person. And this actually leads to the, the, the positive reason why we uh, confess our sin to another person, because it helps us, when we're fully known, to experience being fully loved. When someone confesses their sin to you, it's important how you respond. Your point is not to say, well, that actually was really bad. Man, you gotta feel kind of ashamed about that. Like, you better do better the next time. You're also not supposed to give an excuse like, yeah, it happens, man, we all do it. You know, this is, everybody makes mistakes. You probably were under a lot of pressure. What? You, no, you don't give an excuse. You, your response is to say, I want to point you to the only hope you have in sin, and that is Jesus. And, and you want to affirm to them that when you confess, Jesus is gracious. He really does forgive you. Because this, this is so important. When someone is stuck in their shame, it is hard to believe that God really does love them and forgive them. It's hard for them to believe that in their heart, but it's not hard for another brother or sister to see that. When it's not you, you can look at someone and say, no, Jesus really does love you. He really does forgive you. I'm confident in that even when you aren't. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, theologian from the 20th century, Germany, he put it this way. He said that the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged 
For by himself, he cannot help himself. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ on the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Maybe you've heard it said before that the good news can be summed up. You're a lot worse off than you ever dared imagine. And you're a lot more loved than you ever dared hoped. You ever hear that? This is what confession is like. When you confess to another person, you are saying, I'm a lot worse off than I ever imagined. I'm a lot worse off. But then the other person says, yes, and you are far more loved than you ever dared dream. And when they say it, you can believe it when you can't convince yourself. That's why we do this. Uh, Martin Luther was a, a, a priest, a Catholic priest in the 16th century. And he had a lot of critiques of the Catholic Church at the time, and he eventually broke off and led the movement that became Protestantism. And as he's doing this, there are a lot of things that uh, the Catholic Church did at the time that he decided to throw out and, and get rid of. But there's one thing that he kept that might surprise you. He did not get rid of confession to another person. He actually said, this is a really important thing to do. Now, he changed it in a lot of ways. He said, you don't only have to go to a priest. They're not the only person you can confess to. You can go to any uh, Christ follower and do this. And he also said, we're not gonna make it mandatory. It's not gonna be required. Because he said, I think people will actually want to do this when they realize what it offers. He says, when you realize that going to confess to another person is a way to experience grace, not condemnation, to hear on the lips of another person the thing that your heart struggles to believe, you will want to do that. He actually said this. He said, if you are a Christian, you should be glad to run more than 100 miles for confession." Not under compulsion, but rather coming and compelling us to offer it. When the Holy Spirit makes you sensitive to your sin, you crave that moment of freedom that comes from bringing your sin into the light and being assured by a brother or sister that God is faithful and just. And he forgives your sin and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. This is true. So here's what I want you to ponder as we wrap up. What would happen if you regularly did this? What would happen to us if we regularly did, did this, if confessing sin was a consistent rhythm in our life? For some of you, it would make an immediate change. That there is something very specific you know you need to confess. The entire time I've been talking, the Holy Spirit has been pointing at it, saying this is it. You know, you, you know what it is that you need to bring out into the light. And you might be dreading that. I, I have been in your shoes. There have been moments in my life where I've had secret sin that I kept hidden for far too long. So I was scared of what, what might happen if people found out about this. It sounded painful. But it's a lot like having a, a rotten tooth. The, the, the process of getting a tooth removed is painful. It's, it's unpleasant. And yet, the, it's way worse to keep that tooth in there constantly nagging you, pressing on you, constantly distracting you and, and, and pushing on you. That pain is gonna last longer and be worse over time and the pain of having it removed. And as soon as it's removed, there's gonna be this moment of relief and things are gonna get better from there. Now, it might be messy. There might be consequences of bringing something into the light, but I can tell you this. The season of growth that comes after that is incredible. It will be one of the most fruitful in your life and you will be thankful that you did it. Everybody I know who has is always grateful that they brought those things into the light. So I wanna plead with you. As soon as you can, get that out. Tell someone about what you're hiding. Tell them today, before you leave, text someone and say, there's something important I need to talk to you about. Throw your hat over the fence so that you've gotta go get it. Please do it. For your own sake, come into the light. 
But confession is valuable not just for the immediate moment of, of getting hidden sin out there. It's, it's really helpful over the course of time. It shapes you in really amazing ways. Uh, for one thing, it makes it so that sin doesn't really ever get a strong foothold in your life because you're rooting it out really quickly. It also keeps you really dependent on Jesus because you know it's only by his grace that you stand. You, you feel it. And honestly, it makes you into the kind of person that you would want to be around. You, you know those people who are just really genuine? Like you're with them, they never seem to be looking down on you. They aren't full of themselves. They're, they're patient when you mess up and they're humble when they mess up. They're open to correction, but they're, they're still confident. They're okay with people who are in process. They're just down to earth, they're good to be around. You, you know those people? What does it take to become that sort of person? Well, one surefire way is to make confession a regular part of your life. Because over time, confession keeps your heart soft and humble and gracious towards other people because you know what it's like to mess up, but you also know what it's like to receive that kind of grace and kindness. Think, think about what it would be like to be in a community full of people like that. What, what would it feel like? Wouldn't that be so attractive to people on the outside? People would look at that and say, I, I don't know about all the things they believe, but I know that they're the sort of people I like to be around. It, wouldn't you wanna be a part of a church like that where you say, you know what, whatever I'm going through, I've got people I can share with and they won't reject me, they'll welcome me in, love me, walk with me. That's the kind of place I wanna be a part of. How do you make that happen? You do it by making confession a regular rhythm of your life. There are some of you here who have never done that ever. You, you've never had a moment where you turned to Jesus and said, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. You've never surrendered your life to him. This is the day. This is the day to do it. The day to say, Jesus, I'm done running my own life. I made a mess of it, and it's a mess I can't clean up on my own. I need you. If that's you, this is the time when you say, I, I wanna, I wanna surrender to Jesus, even for the first time. As I pray right now, I, I want you to pray along with me. You're gonna just pray a prayer of surrender that, that says that, and you can do that in your own heart and do business with God today. Let's pray. God, we wanna surrender our lives to you. God, we wanna start off by saying, I'm sorry. God, I, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. I, I know that what I've done is wrong. I shouldn't have done it. There are things I should have done that I haven't done, and I am so sorry, I need your forgiveness. I've made a mess and only you can clean it up, God. Please forgive me. Take just a moment right now, in the quietness of your heart, to just say to God the things that you're sorry for, to confess your sin to him. Take a moment, we wanna say thanks to Jesus for what he's done. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you didn't leave me in my sin. Thank you that you came and rescued me. You, you did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross and rising from the dead so that my sin could be forgiven and I could have new life. Jesus, thank you for coming to rescue me. That's my only hope. Take a moment, just in your heart, to express your gratitude to Jesus for what he's done.
And now take a moment just to say, please, Jesus, I need you to come into my life and start changing things. Transform me, be the king of my life. As I've been running my life, it hasn't gone well. I need you to be the one to make me new. Give me a, a new heart and transform me and give me a new hope of life with you. God, please express that to, to Jesus.